Hello and welcome to another episode of What's That Noise? The podcast that pursues matters of confusion and clarity, however and whatever that means. Today I am joined by John Hannon Minchel, a master's student here in the kinesiology program at Queen's University in the beautiful Kingston, Ontario, Canada. We get to chat about interdisciplinarity, but this time I'm going to learn more about the hard sciences and understanding what that means in a program I know absolutely nothing about. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. I'm going to kick today's episode off with a happy new year. Welcome to 2019, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm really, really excited to share this this episode with you. And the next step in kicking it off is to give a shout out to Toast and Jam, my favorite breakfast place in Kingston. I'm not just giving a shout out because I happen to really enjoy the breakfast there, but having breakfast there back in October is what made this episode possible. So I'm sitting in this restaurant on a weekday morning, and I'm having my eggs and my sausage and my potatoes and toast and jam and my coffee. And I can't help but notice that my academic tingly senses are going off because this young couple beside me are having this really intensely cool and very astute conversation about gender politics. You know what that's like as an analyst. When it's going on around you, it can be very tough to turn off. And so my subconscious is like totally interested in wanting to jump into the conversation and ask so many questions, which is how we got to where we are now. I asked the two people if they studied at Queens as nicely and as non-intrusively as I could. And one of them happens to be John Hannon Minchel. John is a Master's of Kinesiology student at Queen's. And so as soon as I find this out, I'm thinking I have to get him on the podcast. A Master's of Kinesiology talking about gender politics, gender identity, and literature in a way that I wouldn't normally expect to hear from a kinesiology student. I don't know much about kinesiology, to be completely honest with you. All I can recall from my days of my undergrad at Western, it was the biggest program we had. First year lecture of over 900 people sitting in a room. John is a very astute, well-rounded, well-read individual. We met for coffee again after we chatted briefly at Toast and Jam. And we talked more about what is you know, John doing in a kinesiology program when he has this level of engagement in such a a difficult field that is otherwise completely unrelated. And that's precisely why we're getting into interdisciplinarity today. John actually happens to be part of a subfield in his program called the Sociocultural Studies of Sport, Health, and the Body. Let me repeat that for you. Sociocultural Studies of sport, health, and the body. Today, John is going to help me understand how little I know about interdisciplinarity. We are going to talk about interdisciplinarity from the perspective of someone trained in the hard sciences, 
but migrating into the social sciences. Or another way to put this is that somebody who is in what I would otherwise identify as a hard science program doing very social scientific work. This chat makes me feel very old. I just turned 34, and I did two interdisciplinary degrees. My first one was a Master of American Studies, which I did at Western University, and the second was in Communication and Culture. It's a joint program between York and Ryerson Universities. And very rarely throughout those two degrees did I ever meet anyone that had the kind of competency in the hard sciences that John has. And so you can understand why my mind goes everywhere in wanting to talk to him. What I learned from John today is that interdisciplinarity is not just about philosophical and methodological enrichment. It's also very useful for facilitating a kind of constructive monitoring, or as John puts it, a way of keeping an eye on things. It's kind of like a reflexive backboard to make sure that what's going on on one side of the sciences is being countered or balanced by the other side. But for those of us who are intimately involved in interdisciplinarity, we know just how challenging it is to be a social scientist, for example, and get lost in the logics, theories, practices, and methods, ways of doing things that are pertinent to the hard sciences. For example, I say I study big data. I don't know anything about how to code an algorithm. It would never happen, not in a million years. But we recognize as interdisciplinarians, <laughs> if that's a word, that this is important. And at least collaboration needs to be very important. Halfway through our chat today, John's going to share some really interesting insight from his experiences moving between these sides of the academy, so to speak, and discussing whether or not a researcher can empirically discover meaning. This opens up for a fascinating entry into our conclusion which is about whether or not John is going to stay in the academy. And this happens to be one of the most interesting things I personally find in getting to know someone like John. I can't say that I've met a graduate student that is more well-equipped to be successful as an analyst and as a practitioner of anything interdisciplinary. And yet he's questioning whether or not he wants to stay in the academy. Fascinating set of circumstances very fascinating problem. I did a funny thing, which is uh, reading a, a self-help book, and I read I read a few of them. Um, lots of issues there, but I I really like this one particular one um, by a psychologist from the University of Pennsylvania, Angela Duckworth, um, and it's called Grit. Again, lots of neoliberal type issues there, but. Um, it was really, really interesting. She was talking about people are asking how they, how they build grit, um, which is just supposed to be this kind of characteristic that predicts who's successful in life. Nice. Um, so so she, she's basically saying one of the first things you have to do is you have to think about what you're passionate about, what are kind of your guiding passions. And that made a lot of sense to me. So I spent the next little while thinking about that and kind of reflecting on like, what is most important to me? What do I want to do? What do I want to accomplish? 
So then maybe I can move from there and be, okay, what, how am I going to go about doing that? So for me, I kind of landed on, there are two main things um, that I think kind of get me fired up and that are, yeah, just the things that, that guide me, they're the things that I'm most passionate about. And so one would be learning and growing myself. This is part of why is reading a self-help book, but also part of why I love research. I just really enjoy learning new things and, and growing as a, as a person. So that was the first one. And then the other one, equally important to me, is helping others grow and learn. And so that's something my, my, I've been spending the last seven summers um, working at summer camps uh, in, in the Muskokas in Ontario. And I think that's one of the things I love, I love about that is like, in my, my particular program at, at my camp, which is Camp Tamarack and Bracebridge, I'm the CIT director, which is like the counselor in training. And so my job is to help these young people who are 14 to 16, help them get ready to, on the one hand, transition into being camp staff from campers. But on the other hand, I think just grow as, as, as leaders and people. And I think that that's, that's one of the, the things that I love about the program is you get to not just train people in kind of like the hard skills of, of being a camp staff member, but also um, it's, a, it's a nice setting to get to build some life skills. So there's that. I've also coached. I've played basketball in my background, and I've coached basketball. Love that. Right now I'm in my MA, so I've been TAing, and I absolutely love TAing. Like it's it's great to. I don't love marking, but um, but I love working with the students. Like it's it's a lot of it's a lot of fun for me. I don't know anyone that actually enjoys grading. No, yeah, there's literally no one. Um, but but yeah, so so those are those are my two things: learning and growing myself, and helping other people learn and grow. And so I actually kind of came to that conclusion relatively easy. It didn't take me too long. Um, to kind of think about it. I was just thinking about what are the things that I do? Why do I do them? Why do I love doing them? And so I was like, okay, I love to learn. I love to grow. I love to help others learn and grow. What, what kind of avenues can I pursue that will allow me to do that for a living? And so that's how I got to academia. I thought it's kind of the, the perfect balance. You know, you get to do your own research. So for me, that would be kind of the learning and, and growing as an individual. I would get to, to kind of follow my passions and my interests and just learn about things and be around lots of other brilliant people and learn from them. And then on the other side of it, you become a professor or, or even now as a TA, you get to help other people learn and grow, your students or the graduate students you're supervising or your peers. And so that's kind of how I got to where I am now. That's how I decided, okay, I want to do an MA program. And, and that's why I'm here. And I, I still definitely get a chance to do those things. But I think that one, one thing is I'm always kind of trying to reflect on what I'm doing and make sure that it's kind of like calibrated towards that ultimate goal. Because again, I'm, I'm not... I'm not in academia right now because I want to be in academia. I'm in academia because I want to learn and grow as a person and I want to help other people learn and grow. 
So those are, those are the things that are important. Academia is like the vehicle. So as I've been going through this first semester, I've been, I've been fortunate enough to talk to lots of people who are further along than me in their studies. Um, and I've been able to experience a little bit of it. And I think that I've, I've come up against, which is kind of bound to happen, some, some ways in which academia isn't as perfect for, for those two things as I might have originally thought it was, which makes sense as you get into it and you do more of it and you, you learn about it. It's never as perfect as you think it's going to be, no matter what that thing is that you're talking about. So I think I, I started to realize that, and there are just certain things about academia that I think make those two things that I'm most passionate about a little difficult or, or make, them, make it not so easy for me to do them in the way that I think would be best. So an example of that would be research. I remember the, the first day I was taking the first class for the course that my supervisor, um, Professor Samantha King, is teaching, she handed out um, some sheets of paper that were, it was like a list of things from an academic, uh, Professor Kyle Ozana Tompkins, I think was her name. And it was basically like a list of things that she'd wish someone would have told her as a first generation graduate student. I thought it was a really helpful list. I loved it. I have it like pinned above my desk right now. Um, but there was, there was one thing that she actually repeated it a few times that I think kind of illustrates one of these issues, um, which is she said, find the money. And I think somewhere else she said, follow it. And that's, if you want to be a successful academic, I think that that's kind of important. You do need to find out where the, the funding is and follow it because otherwise it's going to be hard to sustain yourself in this career. Um, and it's not necessarily the, the be all end all. You don't have to be in the highest funded field to be able to survive as an academic, but it, it helps and you do need funding to be able to do your work no matter what your work is. And that's, so that's, that's great. If that, if you want to be an academic, that's something you're going to have to do and that's fine. For me, again, it's not academia isn't the goal. So once I kind of have this realization that, okay, I need to follow the funding, which means I need to kind of follow to a degree, at least the interests of, of different funding organizations and governments and stuff like that to, to get my funding to do my research. Is that still the best way for me to learn and grow as a person? If that, if that's my real goal. Um, and so I'm kind of running into that issue where there's, there's things that I may be interested in studying that don't, not even necessarily don't fall into the category of things that are, are fundable because, I mean, most things that you can get ethics passed for are at least somewhat fundable, um, maybe. But, um, but there's, and, and we've spoken a little bit about this, you kind of have to stay within your field. And I, I have very niche random interests in all kinds of wild different things. So I, I really 
I think we, we've spoken about this. My, my like kind of guiding thing that I'm interested in is, is culture and things as cultural phenomenon. And so one of the things that I'm really interested in, although again, I'm in, I'm in a kinesiology and health, health studies fa- faculty. I do some research on gender and outdoor recreation, kind of leisure studies type stuff. I'm really interested in music and I'm really interested in people's tastes in music and why certain people like certain kinds of music and what certain kinds of music mean to certain people. And it's not necessarily so easy, it's not impossible, but it's not necessarily so easy to weave that into kinesiology and health studies. Um, But I also, like, that's not the only thing I'm interested in. I can't just go into a, a... sort of like music studies field because there are other things that I'm interested in like food. I'm, I'm really interested in the culture surrounding food. Um, and like I'm, I'm someone food, food and drink. I'm someone who I love to eat, but I also really love to cook. Um, and I think, I think that the, the like practice of cooking is a really interesting thing. I, I kind of struggle to see how I would be able to, to fund these different types of projects or just inquiries into these kind of this wide array of areas um, and, and even being able to do it on a, on a particular timeline. Because if I were to go get funding for a project, theoretically speaking, I would need to dedicate like a certain amount of time working on that project before I could move and work on another one. You can work on multiple projects at once, but... You know, I feel like the the nature of funding in academia kind of makes it difficult for me to pursue the the wide range of interests that I have. Coming out of your undergrad and heading into your master's, it's obvious to me that you are motivated to help. You're motivated to contribute. In my experience, and I know Many of our listeners are going to see this differently and they will have experienced this differently. Most people get into the social sciences in graduate school, which is not necessarily where you are, strictly Mm -hmm. speaking. Yeah. Don't really know why they're there. And I know I'm selling some people short here and I apologize for that. The point that I'm trying to make is simply that there is so much confusion and there is so much lack of certainty and confidence in the academy as an institution, as an industry, in being able to position people to contribute in a way that makes sense to them. Tell me a little bit more then about why kinesiology is a good home for you to have these questions right now. What is it about kinesiology that positions you as a human being, not just an academic, to speak towards the value of contributing to society? That's a really interesting question. The reason why I'm in kinesiology right now as a graduate student is, to be honest, because that's where I was as, a, as an undergrad. And so that's kind of where my network was in. I wound up here because one of my instructors had worked with my supervisor. He recommended me to her. And then, you know, it, it seemed like a good fit. And so here I am. So that's kind of practically why I'm here. Um, 
I think, I think that kinesiology and health studies or physical education or whatever it's called at, at different universities is a really interesting program because you, you have so many people from so many different backgrounds and with so many different interests. I think I, for, for a little while in my undergrad, I was kind of disappointed that I wound up in, in kinesiology because I was someone who saw myself as more of a social scientist and there is social science happening in kinesiology faculties but it's definitely not at the center and it's a lot of times kind of pushed off to the side and and by certain members of of those circles seen as less than some of the the hard science or or even behavioral work that's being done in those programs and certainly if you look at funding there's a lot more funding in the in the biophysical stream than there is in the physical cultural stream um and that's that's its own problem but i i've really kind of towards the end of my undergrad and since i've been here starting off my my graduate studies i've really appreciated the the interdisciplinarity of the program because at at U of T where i did my undergrad the first 2 years so I, I, I technically graduated with a Bachelor of Physical Education. You can graduate with a Bachelor of Physical Education or a Bachelor of Kinesiology. But either way, the first two years are the exact same. You're taking all the same courses. You're taking, there's three streams. So there's biophysical, behavioral, and physical cultural. You're taking stuff from all three of those streams, the kind of basic stuff. And you're, you're getting that background before you wind up picking which thing you're going to move forward with. And I mean, even practically speaking for me, that was perfect because through my probably second year there, most of my second year, I was like, oh, I'm going to go into medicine. I want to be a, a sports medicine doctor. And that wasn't going to happen. Um, and then I, I decided, oh, no, I want to be a strength and conditioning coach. Nope. And, and then towards the end, I, I eventually found my way into, uh, into the physical cultural studies. And I'm, I'm really glad that I did. I think that this is where I, I enjoy this type of work. Um, but it was amazing for me to be able to explore all those different things. And it's amazing for me now to have experience in those. So I, I kind of have some more insight into what's going on in, in other disciplines, you know, like I, I, I took courses even at the third and fourth year level that were very different from what I'm focusing on, but I think still add something to, to my approach. I can have, I can have an appreciation of the, those, those quote unquote hard sciences um, a little better than if I were to do a, a pure social science bachelor's degree. I think it's really difficult for somebody in the social sciences to go to the hard sciences because there is a ton of practical knowledge and logic governing very interdisciplinary approaches to, for example, techno science or big data analytics or computer engineering, right? So you don't see that happen very often. You, no. need, you need an entirely different regime of training yeah. and it needs to be qualified in a lot of cases right but then at the same time or almost on the other hand john you don't often hear about people in the hard sciences going into the social sciences 
One of the biggest reasons being it's a lot of money in the hard sciences. Yeah. Now, when I think about a field like kinesiology, which I admittedly know nothing about. Fair. I don't see it as... My, my assumption would be that it's not very interdisciplinary. And I can imagine that at the graduate level, people would be surprised by the amount of patience and openness and willingness to engage in other disciplines for the sake of, just for example, enriching someone's philosophical backbone. But at the same time, we also hear stories about how these fields are, you know, say to be one thing and then aren't. What's the biggest difference between what you experienced in your undergrad and what you're telling me about now in like a kind of hard science field with interdisciplinary things going on inside of it? So sorry, what's, what's the difference between what I, what I experienced and, and what, I'm, what I'm talking to you about in terms of? Yeah, I, I guess the, what I'm wondering about, John, and I'm having trouble articulating this because I'm trying to imagine at the core what a standard conventional kinesiology graduate program would look like. And I would imagine that that program would attract a lot of hard scientists. Do you need like hard science qualifications to get in? And if that's the case, um, what's going on? Like, why are so many people inside of kinesiology, at least in your experience, exploring with these interdisciplinary things? I mean, I, I would imagine there's a lot of money. And if, if it's a specifically regimented discipline, why, why bother with the social sciences? Yeah, so, so that's, that's, a, that's a really good question. I think at the, it's, a, it's a kind of person-by-person person thing, I think, at, at the most basic level because at like at u of t in kinesiology not everyone is as open to the interdisciplinarity and so there are i mean at the risk of sounding pessimistic i would say that that most people in kinesiology sitting in that first year physical cultural studies course hate it and they do not want to be there and they're just there because it's a mandatory course um, and for, I would say for a fair number of people, it's like that all the way through until they no longer have to take any more physical cultural courses. But there are a lot of people there, there, there's also a, a number of people who maybe go in with that and then leave with a sort of appreciation about it. Or people like me who just, I have no idea. Like I, I'm. I'm kind of, I entered that program without a clear, this is what I want to do with my life. And so I was just there to kind of, I was, I was already going into it pretty open to different fields. I, especially I was coming from, I did my first year at Western before I went to U of T. And while I was at Western, and I think that this actually helped me a lot. We went to the same school? We went to the same school. Oh, snap. I yeah, didn't know that. I know. Crazy. Um, so when, when I was there for my first year, I just took, I wasn't in kinesiology. I was in arts and humanities, undeclared major, and I took five different full year courses. I took an English course, a Spanish course, a history course, a classics course, and one other course. 
that was something interesting. It'll come to you in like 20 yeah. minutes. Yeah. Or <laughs> it once always the interview's does. done. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I, I took all of those courses. So I, I kind of had a more social science humanities background before going into, into U of T or yeah, into U of T for my kinesiology degree. And so I think, I think I, I entered it a little more open to different kind of ways of knowing and going about things than some other people did. But that being said, I have, I, I think I was really lucky with my, my core group of friends from that program. All of us kind of had different interests. Um, and so we had people who were really into the hard sciences and then even within the hard science, it's, it's broken up into to more kind of disciplines. There are people who are really into biomechanics or muscle physiology or all of this stuff that I couldn't tell you much about. But, <laughs> um, but so, so we had within my one group of friends, we had people who were into all these things and we were all taking especially in the first couple of years, these same courses where we were all looking at these things with our different interests. And so we were able to have kind of cool conversations about all of our different fields of, of interest. And so I, I, have, I have one of the guys who I'm, I'm living with now who's in, he's in doing a master's of anatomy here at Queens. Um, but again, because we came from this interdisciplinary program, he he kind of knows the lingo and he he can talk through some of this more social science stuff. And, and he, I think through his, his education there at U of T has come to appreciate it. And he, he can get those things and he's able to have a different kind of understanding of how these things work. And I, I think to a degree that can work with, um, with the faculty as well. I know I had a, a really good relationship towards the, the end of my education there with, um, I think he was a, he's going to get mad at me if I get it wrong, but a muscle biochemistry guy. We'll make sure to tag him yeah. specifically in yes. the show. Yes. Good. Good. Um, named, uh, professor Marius Locke. And so he was, he was hard science dude. Um, but I think he had some of this interest coming into it. Um, but he was interested in, in the more physical cultural side of things. And because of the kind of structure of the program, he's able to to talk, I think, a little bit to some of the physical cultural profs, and they're able to have some kind of back and forth combos over, over these things. And then I'm able to go, and that's kind of where, where him and I were able to bond a little bit, is having these sort of interdisciplinary conversations about things. Um, and we're able to talk about, you know, he's a, he's a muscle biochemistry guy, but he's able to talk to me about some of this social science stuff that I'm looking at. Um, and so I, I think it's a neat space for people who are kind of interested in those things, but it's, it's, it's not, I wouldn't say it's the norm. I think there are a lot of people who go in most, like, like there was, when I graduated, there were maybe eight other people who graduated with a bachelor of phys ed and 200 and some who graduated with a bachelor of kinesiology and they don't offer the bachelor of physical education anymore. Um, which is one kind of sad trend in, in these, these sorts of programs in, in Ontario, for sure, um, is that what was once a Bachelor of Physical Education program becomes physical education and kinesiology, becomes kinesiology and phys physical education, 
becomes kinesiology. And so they're kind of phasing out the, the physical, cultural stuff to a degree. Like they, they still have, I think, the same number of physical, cultural faculty members as, as when I was there doing my studies. But no one, no one can specialize in that right now. As it is right now, there's a, there's a maximum to the number of physical, cultural courses that they are allowed to take. They can take theoretically as many of the hard sciences or behavioral sciences, as many of those courses as they would like to, but the physical, cultural, once they get past their second year, so at the third and fourth year level, they're only allowed 1.0 credits, which is like two single-term courses. And anything else they can do, but it won't count towards their degree. Interesting. So of the people that are around you in your graduate program in kinesiology, who are interested in the social sciences, how many of them are actually doing research projects that you know of that explicitly integrate social science theory or just philosophy in general or maybe like a specific social science method? And do you think or do you know whether or not those people came from similar backgrounds as you? Do you think, in other words, that <laughs> it's like a precondition to do social sciences in your undergrad before you see its value and utility in graduate school? Because, um, and we'll, we'll come back to this later, but I still find it really perplexing that people in the hard sciences see a future in the social sciences speaking strictly from a question of, of financial opportunity. There's not a lot of funding in the social sciences, and yet there's a push from the social sciences to become more interdisciplinary. And I don't think that's about money. In fact, I, I can say confidently that most people that I talk to, it's not about money at all. It's about philosophical enrichment. And this is not a, a reflux judgment on the hard sciences. It's just that in the age of information, in 2018, there is so much going on in the hard sciences. There are so many problems Science is becoming so aggressive and so nuanced in so many different realms of life that questions of, like, for example, social implication, privacy, um, interpersonal relationship managing, that slows progress down. Those are side conversations to a lot of hard scientists. And I'm wondering where my comments are taking you. Yeah, so I think the, so the first part of that was talking about the the other people in my program right now, the people who are doing, um, so at, at, at Queens, the, the kinesiology graduate program, at least is split into six disciplines. And so our discipline, the discipline that I'm in is the only, well, not the only social science. There's a, there's a like kind of sport and exercise psychology one as well. Um, but we have sociocultural studies of sport health and the body is technically my my specialty that's the discipline that i'm in wow can you say that one again yeah you got it um that's the sociocultural studies of sport health and the body yeah yeah i i love it that sounds really cool i yeah. know our co-host derek is probably dying right now not being able <laughs> to be here because he's an expert in the sociology of terrorism and criminology but he also actively contributes to the sociology of sport. So oh, nice. I can hear him screaming in the back of my head. Sorry, buddy. Maybe next time. Sorry, Derek. Um, yeah. So, 
So of, of the people who are in sociocultural studies in my program, I don't wanna, I gotta be careful I don't misspeak, but I, at this particular moment, cannot think of anyone else in that program who did their undergrad in kinesiology. Most, really? Yeah. Wow. So most other people are coming from different disciplines. There are a lot of people, I think partially because, um, at least within my, my supervisor's research group, um, because she's cross-appointed in, in a bunch of different programs here at Queens. She's, in, she's the head of the gender studies department right now. Her home department is the School of Kinesiology and Health Studies. And she also has an appointment at Cultural Studies. And so a lot of, especially her PhD students, are, are people who did masters with her in other departments. So people who maybe did a master's with her in cultural studies are now doing their PhD with her in kinesiology. And so they're in kinesiology and health studies, but they don't actually have a kinesiology and health studies background, but they have, they have interests that are related. They're still interested in, again, something to do with sociocultural studies of sport, health, and the body, which I'm not sure if you noticed is, is pretty vague. It covers a lot there under that. Like it's a wide net. It's a very wide net, which is great for us because we have... It's, it's really cool. We, we spoke about this at our last lab meeting. There's so many people. We're, we're all doing such different things. And there's a, there are some common threads through it, but everyone has really unique research interests. Um, and then even kind of within each person, each individual person is working on, like their thesis is this one thing, but then they're also doing this other kind of side project for one of their courses that's totally different. Um, so that, that wide net is really helpful for that, being able to work on, on really diverse sorts of projects, um, which I, I think is kind of the cultural studies part of that, the socio-cultural. And is that, is that focus within the kinesiology program the most popular? The sociocultural studies right. of not at all. No, so we're, you, so you we're have multiple streams, discipline. right? Yeah, so we have six disciplines. Um, I'm not going to. I'm not going to ask you them. to cite good, them all. That's cool. Good. Oh, <laughs> thank God. Um, yeah, but we so we have we have six. It is far from the most popular. We're all, all of the other disciplines do MSCs. And so we're the only MA program. We're the only MA discipline. Master of Arts and not Master of Science. Precisely. And so you're, wow, I'm, I'm on the ball today. Yeah, this feels awesome. Wow. Killing Look at it. me go. It's got to be this coffee here, right? I think so. Cheers. I think so. It's helping me out. <laughs> we're drinking coffee, by the way, in case you guys haven't noticed with our, our <laughs> frenetic energy. When you did your undergrad, was that a BSc? No, so my, my undergrad was just a Bachelor of Physical and Right, sorry. Yeah, okay, so yeah. A, ba a Bachelor of Physical Education, what are the prerequisites to get into that from high school? Do you remember something like that? Like, did you um, need chemistry and biology and things like that? I don't, I don't think I needed... I think you needed grade 11 chemistry and maybe grade 12 biology. I definitely didn't do grade 12 chemistry, but I think I did grade 12 biology. And you did like grade 12 university 
English and all that too? Yeah. Interesting. It's, it's really fascinating to me how interdisciplinary you are. When I was going through my, my master's and my PhD, I did interdisciplinary programs. Both of them were interdisciplinary. At no point did I ever work with anybody that did chemistry and biology at the end of high school. And yes, despite that being really weird, that was a conversation matter. My, my first year of my PhD was in science and technology studies at York. And there was only six of us in my first year intake. You get to know them pretty quickly, right? The master's was, was pretty small as well. But we were, we were in a program at the master's level that predominantly was about the social sciences. So interdisciplinary within that side of the academy, so to speak. So that's not a good example of looking for people who might be like trained in the hard sciences, right? But even at this point in my life, turning 33 next week, just starting my postdoc, I, I can't think of many examples of people who from the get-go throughout their educational career, starting as far back as high school, had competency in the hard sciences with a developing keen interest in the social sciences. And the sticking point for me here, John, is not just that. There's an underlying tension here and something that I'm really confused about is that we started off talking today before I hit record about you questioning whether or not you want to stay in the academy at all. A lot of really interesting things going on in your development. I think, I think social science does a lot of really, really, really important work, as does hard science for that matter. Um, and I think, I think that one of the, the really important things that social science can do um, is kind of embodied by, by science and technology studies. I think that that is a very important area of research within the social sciences. Um, I think that it's, it's really important that all sciences, social or, or otherwise, have some sort of, someone kind of checking them and keeping an eye on, on what's going on. And I, I think that, t- to be honest, that's maybe one thing that's missing, and I'm getting a little head because this is maybe one of the reasons why I want to leave the academy, is I don't know if there's a lot of, I mean, it's, it's kind of within the social sciences, but I don't know how much there is people keeping an eye on the social sciences and kind of watching what's going on there and critiquing that and making sure that things stay on a, on a productive path. So, so that's one thing I think is, is keeping an eye on the sciences and critiquing the sciences, interpreting the sciences in different ways and kind of looking at, um, looking at that. I think that the, the hard sciences are very, very important, but they don't do everything. And so I think we need to look at the social sciences and the humanities for some of these other things, some of these meaning-making things. I think one, as, as someone who's, who's very interested in and kind of very early on fell in love with existentialism, there's like one thing that I think about when I think about the importance of the social sciences and the humanities, and that's that there's, there's no way to empirically find meaning. Like there's just, in you know, my experience, there's nothing that you can look at. I can't go and look at anything or study anything and then divine meaning from that. 
even in social science, I don't think that as a social scientist, you can go and study the way people in this one specific culture organize themselves, the hierarchy that they organize themselves into. I don't think that you can look at that and be like, oh, I've, I've defined meaning. I've found out what is meaningful, kind of broadly speaking. You can talk about what's meaningful within that group of people, but any of that is, to me at least, kind of socially constructed and socially defined. Like, there's no, there's no way to come up with meaning kind of separate from subjective understandings of things. And science isn't great with subjective understandings of things. I think, I think the hard sciences that is. I think that's where the social sciences and the humanities can come in is we can kind of start to, to piece together some of those subjective things and, and get at understanding different ways of making meaning and what different ways of making meaning do on a, on a larger scale. You know what this is making me think of, John? There is a book that I read a few years ago, written by a scholar named Deborah Cohen, about the rise and fall of Viennese liberalism. And what this book was about was the Exner family in Austria. A couple centuries ago, the Exner family was the premier scientific dynasty, and they were under an intense amount of scrutiny from the church because they were mounting arguments about science in ways that were not only an affront to uh, the church and its ability to govern people through religious doctrine. And if I'm understanding correctly, what these scientists were arguing was that what we ought to embrace as hard science analysts is the fact that numbers are imperfect. That between decimal points, there's confusion and a lack of clarity. That between the points of standardized measurement, there's space, and as such, grayness. It's interesting to me, listening to you talk, and having my mind wander a little bit into Deborah Cohen's work, because it's an example of a point in time where uncertainty and confusion and noise was embraced by scientists but it doesn't seem to be that way anymore. Despite the fact that so many hard sciences take for granted causation, and here's what I mean. I have to be specific because this is a very specific claim. Big data. Big data is not about causation. It can't prove anything. It can find correlations. It can show trends. But nobody that is a vehement subscriber to big data analytics and big data philosophy is a post-positivist. Everybody says that what's meaningful about the world is self-evident. If I can take a measurement, it speaks for itself. This is positivism for anyone that's not familiar with this. The only meaningful knowledge in the world comes through science and math. But when I hear you speak, I'm hearing the opposite. I'm hearing a post-positivist philosophy that meaning in the world is constructed. And so I'm hearing your social science interests come out. And I'm hearing you, I'm, I'm seeing here, John, that you're like a lethal graduate student with this hybrid, complex backbone of thinking about the world. And yet, here we are, wondering whether or not grad school is the way for you. This is truly perplexing. I spent so much time teaching over the years trying to get people ready 
to be hybrid, to embrace complexity. Is there something else about positivism, post-positivism in particular, whether or not that resonates with you, doesn't really matter. Is it something about perhaps the lack of funding or the lack of confidence in the academy? Is there something other than just the problems of the academy going on here that's compelling you to get outside? I think, I think it, again, for me, it just comes back to, to those things that are, are most important for me. And so that's, again, like learning and growing myself and, and helping others to learn and grow. And I, I don't think that academia is the wrong place for that. I think I still 100% believe that within the academy, I can learn and grow myself and help others learn and grow. And I mean, to be honest, in, in most settings, you can probably find a way to do that. Um, but for me, it's about finding a, a setting that is most conducive to that as well as fitting within other things. Like I say that these are like my two main um, guiding passions and they are, but there are other things that are, that are important to me as well. Um, and so like, I'll always remember one of the, one, one really influential experience for me was I in either first or second year for one of my assignments as a qualitative methods course, I had to interview someone. And so this is during the phase in my development when I was, I want to be a, a, a strength and conditioning coach. So I went and interviewed a strength and conditioning coach. And it was a, a fine interview. Um, but this is a, a strength and conditioning coach at a Canadian university. And at one point I asked them about their ambitions. Were they hoping to maybe, because they, they came from a professional sports background were they hoping to maybe be a strength and conditioning coach for a pro team? Um, they were still pretty young, so they, you know, they had time to do that if that was something that they wanted to do. And he, he said to me that he wasn't interested in that. And that kind of caught me off guard because I, you know, I was thinking, when I was thinking I want to be a strength and conditioning coach, I was like, well, of course, I'm going to do it. I want to be at the, the highest level. Like, why else would you do something? And, and he, he said to me, that it wasn't, that wasn't what was most important to him at, at that stage. What was most important, he had, a, he had a, a comfortable job where he had, it was, a, it was a good job. He had freedom, he had autonomy, he had like a decent paycheck, he was doing well. And the, the big thing for him that he loved about the university job as opposed to going to a pro team where he'd maybe be making more money is he could stay put. He could stay in the town that he was in and he didn't have to go and travel with the team anywhere. So he could stay and he could spend more time with his wife and with his kid. And that was really important to him was being able to do those things. To him, the most important thing was I'm a strength and conditioning coach. I have to be the best strength and conditioning coach in the world uh, in the best organization. It was, I'm somewhere where I'm comfortable financially and I enjoy my work. And I'm able to, to spend lots of time with my family. And that is, <laughs> as weird as it sounds, that was like mind-blowing to me. I was like, wow. So I don't have to like just 
reach the top, whatever the top is of whatever field I wind up going into. If I want to be a strength and conditioning coach, I can just make it to a level at which I'm comfortable. I've, I've kind of got the, the basic material needs covered. Um, I'm doing work that I enjoy. And I have time to spend with my family, with my friends. And so I think that kind of tying that back into this, it's, I don't need, I I don't feel the need for academia per se. I want, like, there are these specific things that I want. I want to be able to grow and help others grow. I want to be able to spend time with my family and friends. I want to be able to do those sorts of things. And so it's not just, you know, one thing is I talk to a lot of, um, a lot of graduate students, a lot of professors. There's not, and you can, you can speak to this, there's not like a lot of free time as an academic. And I know it, 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 kind of, it kind of depends. I know that there are, I've spoken to professors who like have time to go to their kids' football games or stuff like that. And that's, that's really great. And, and in some ways, academia can be more flexible that way, where you, know, you don't necessarily have to be in nine to five. You can skip out a little early to go do this and work a little later another night or whatever. But again, no, those are the things that I'm, that I'm looking for. It's these kind of, it's not like a particular station or a particular destination even. It's just these kind of like qualities that I want to have in my life. And so with, especially during grad school, I think once you get like, oops, once you get, once you get tenured, you can kind of Relax a little bit, if right? If you find the job. If you, if you find the job. But that's, that's the whole thing is that if you find the job and if you're willing to kind of sacrifice your life for a bunch of years until then, um, which is great. Like if, if academia is your, your goal or you think academia is the best place for you to, to accomplish whatever your goal is, then that's perfect. That's amazing. For me, Academia is not the goal, and I just want to make sure that it's the best place for me to meet my goal or my goals. So, so I think that's where it, it comes from. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not even really like disillusioned with, with the academy. I think there are lots of problems with it, but I don't think like there's, there's problems with any job you go into. There are going to be whatever, whatever I wind up doing with my life, there are going to be parts of it that I hate. Um, it's just about finding the best possible kind of landing space for me and so i've thought about you know maybe it would be a little bit easier for me if i were to go into to journalism or something like that not that there's a ton of jobs in journalism right now but if i were to go into to journalism and then i can kind of to a degree like pick what my interests are and at least have some some time and autonomy to go and do little kind of digs on certain things. Like, like I think Malcolm Gladwell lives the dream. Like he, to me, that's like, that is the dream. Like he, he wrote, he was able at the, at the Washington post to write um, on, on science and technology. And I think that that's really interesting. He was able to go in and, and do all of this um, sort of research on that and write to a particular audience about it. Then he goes to the New Yorker, whereas I understand it, there's a, there's a degree of autonomy that the, the New Yorker 
writers have in, in picking the things that they want to. Yeah. Yeah. And so he's able to do these things. And now he has, like, I think he just started his own publication company and he, you know, again, come back to music. He's, he's just started this new podcast um, with his friend, Bruce Hedlum and the legendary music producer, Rick Rubin um, on, on music, just cause it's something that he's interested in and he's having these cool conversations with these people. And so let's make a podcast. That's like the dream to me <laughs> to be able to just like kind of follow well, you're halfway there. You're on, you're on what's that noise. And you've got exactly. to, you're going to get a whole two new followers out of this. Yeah. This is huge. <laughs> Yeah. So, so I, I think that's, that's part of it is me thinking about, are there other ways for me to, I still would like to contribute intellectually, but do I have to be, um, in the Academy to do that? And I've kind of been thinking, no, I don't have to be, that doesn't mean that I shouldn't be, but maybe there are other avenues like journalism or, or something like that, that might be, that might allow me some more freedoms in areas that are important to me. Before we spoke today, I anticipated asking you very different questions. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about Mr. Rattleband. Yes. The Dutch guy. Yes. Who went to the Dutch courts and argued that he wanted to change his age mm-hmm. from 69 to 49 because he did not feel that his age reflected who he was. Yes. I wanted to ask you about Jordan Peterson. And the endless waves of noise <laughs> yeah. that emanate from his being. I wanted to talk to you about a number of different gender things because you're an expert in gender studies as a kinesiologist <laughs> or in a kinesiology program. And there's so many amazing, wonderful things that we can disentangle for our listeners and, and even for me selfishly because I don't have the kind of um, disciplinary prowess that you have in, in gender studies in particular. And I think that makes for really fantastic uh, content. And so I'm wondering, John, if you don't mind, when the new year hits, I want to get you back in here. I, w- I would love to talk to you about those things. Yeah, that would be great. More specifically. Yeah, for sure. And you've left me a lot to think about already today, about the Academy, not in terms of what it can provide, but what it can't. And I think that a lot of people, have a pretty strong understanding when they're in grad school very quickly of what it can and can't do for you. Yeah. You seem to have experience beyond your years and that, that makes you very valuable whether or not you stay in the academy or you leave. And as a final thought here, I wanted to, yeah, my pleasure, man. Thank you for joining me. When, um, when I've it. met people who have uh, left the academy or when I've heard about them, they've always been extremely successful. There's kind of wisdom about making that hard choice to walk out. And it's a hard choice because it's so hard to get in. And there's a lot of stigma, I think, about getting into grad school and then leaving. Has that stigma played a role in your thought process? Is it something you've considered? And is it relevant? That stigma isn't, isn't very relevant. I don't, I don't care that much. Like part, part of the reason why, like, Part of the reason why, even with the knowledge that I might not want to stay in academia, that I'm more than happy to, to finish out my master's, um, is because I think that there's, again, just by, by leaving the academy doesn't mean that I don't want, that I want nothing to do with the academy. I think that 
if I were to, for instance, go into to journalism, I think that it would be very handy for me to have these sorts of relationships um, within the academic world because I think I'm very interested in that. I think that if I were if I were to go and be a journalist, one of the things I would want to write about is the the academy. I'd be very interested in in keeping tabs on the academy and staying involved, even if I'm not in the university system, I would love to, to still be involved in this. Cause I think that there's a ton of super valuable work, um, that goes on here. And, and uh, I mean, a uh, part of the other things that I would, part of the, yeah, part of what I would like to do if I left as well would be to make some of that work a little more accessible for people who don't have the chance to to get into the academy and that's part of one one of the other reasons and it's something i think that we've talked about before is my interest in like public sociology but kind of public academia more generally um is something that i'm really interested in so i would love to be able to write about some of the work that's happening in the academy in a way that makes it more accessible for people who are not in the academy or even people who are in different parts of the academy because like we've been saying even even if you're a member of the academy if you're like if i were to go right now and try and read one of professor Locke's muscle biochemistry things despite my kinesiology undergrad i would have no idea what he was talking about um and so it's it's <laughs> the academy is really interesting in that way and that even very 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 smart people within the academy are not going to understand stuff that even even some very basic stuff that's in other parts of it um yeah i don't i don't fully remember what the question was <laughs> that happens to me sometimes it had something to do with <laughs> stigma which means it's not oh, really the, yeah, really that yeah, important yeah the stigma so i don't know i'm not too worried about the time that i'm spending in the academy either because to me it's all it's all valuable in terms of the the relationships but also the knowledge i think i think that already in this one semester of my of my masters i've learned so much and i think that i will continue to learn a lot throughout my um my graduate studies whether that ends after my masters or continues through to a phd and postdoc and all that. I, I think that I will learn a ton of valuable information that whether or not I'm in the academy for the, the rest of my working life will help me wherever I go. And so I, I, don't, I don't have a problem with even doing and finishing a PhD and then going and doing something else. Like to me, you, you learn so much that, and it's kind of what you were saying before about people who, who leave the academy and how they're they're able to be successful outside of it. I think part of it is is maybe that wisdom of being able to step away, but I think also part of it is you do learn a lot in the academy, um, regardless of what other other issues there might be with it. You, you can learn a ton if you if you approach your studies in a in 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 the right sort of way. And so to me, it's valuable whether whether or not I stay in the academy. I think I'm going to learn a ton from it, and I already have. Um, so I, I have zero qualms with, you know, spending however much time it is in school and then going off. Because I, I think it'll all pay dividends in the end, whether, um, you know, 
I admire your confidence and your wisdom. This is this has been an absolute pleasure sitting and chatting with you. I'd, I'd really love to do this again with you in the new year. Thank you so much for joining me, John. Thank you, Tommy. I really appreciate the opportunity. I'd love to talk again. Sounds good. Let's do it again soon. All right. Cheers. This has been another episode of What's That Noise? If you haven't done so already, go on to iTunes and check us out there. Or conversely, on your Android, you can go find us on Google Play Music. Give us a follow at What's That Data? That's right, I have a new Twitter. Or if you have any complaints, fire them over to at Derek Krim. In the meantime, be well, happy new year, and keep listening for the noise. Noise.